Turning 80, actually, for me, was an event more than just a birthday. Uh, I kind of went into a funk, which is not like me. I'm an, a very much of an optimist as a person, but it suddenly seemed things were caving in. Meet Catherine Esty of Massachusetts. She's a therapist, author, widow as of 2015, a mother of four. And now I'm a grandmother with 12 grandkids. So back to the summer she turned 80. I went on a hike just around my birthday time with a bunch of my grandkids and my children and daughters-in-law. And we went to this mountain in the Adirondacks, which is a small mountain. I climbed it 40 times in my uh, all, all my life. And so this time I didn't think anything about doing it. It had rained the day before and we, we started out on this small hike and I fell right in about the first you know, half mile and scraped my knee and then I kind of, it was slippery and I kind of slipped on one little bridge, uh, just a little bit, but enough to scare me a bit. And then when I got to the bottom of the steep part, I realized I was tired. I just couldn't make it. I was a, it's a scramble up. You have to kind of be on your hands and knees. And I just saw that this time I didn't have the energy. And it was a huge shock to me because I'd always seen myself as, you know, I was the grand that could still do uh, push-ups. I was uh, kind of, I power through usually, but I couldn't do it. And so I sat down on a stump and one of my sons stayed with me while everybody else climbed up the mountain. And it was just a real moment of saying to myself, I can't do what I've done before. I am getting old. And I kind of sat there for that hour, paralyzed on the stump. But by the time the other, uh, the kids and the grandkids and my kids came down, um, I was kind of, uh, had put myself together again. And I kind of started with a new uh, understanding that I was aging and uh, I would have to live differently. And this is what led me to write my book because I, kept thinking, somebody must know how to do 80. I don't know. Because I've always been the one that you know, that did everything, and I wasn't used to giving up and letting go. So I couldn't quite figure out how I could be me and be old. Catherine Esty's book is called 80-somethings, a practical guide to letting go, aging well, and finding unexpected happiness. Huh, I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk no, about I think the... you need to come over, stand in my shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, why aging is so hard. We are almost universally terrified of it and can't imagine how we could be happy at a point when our bodies and minds no longer function as we want them to. But we're wrong. That's what one of the really important things I want to share. To write her book, Catherine Esty interviewed more than 120 people in their 80s. She was looking for some way to be hopeful about what she was facing. I asked everybody on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, how, how happy are you, are you right nowadays? And there were about three or four that gave me five or six or four or three. But everybody else was a, a eight, nine or 10. She had discovered a well-documented but little-known phenomenon called the U-curve of happiness. On average, our sense of well-being is strongest when we're young and when we're old, and bottoms out at the base of the U-curve in our 50s. People in their 80s, on the whole, are, in fact, happier than people in their 70s, who are, in fact, happier than people in their 60s. And it turns out that most people don't know that. They kind of dread uh, aging. But it is true. And I think it's, it's, I call it a sort of paradox of aging because there are losses, but it's the, the paradox is that people are happier. They begin to treasure what they have and see, you know, the real privilege it is to be able to grow old. What, what do you mean the privilege it is to grow old? Because our life expectancy in America is only 78 now. It's gone backwards the last year with COVID and so on. But at 80, half the people 
in your cohort are, are no longer living. And so everybody's had these losses. So it, if you're alive, you begin to see that it, it is a privilege to be the one that's of the lucky ones that uh, have made it. And they don't have a lot of regrets about what I didn't do. They have learned how to live more so in the moment than, uh, you know, they don't spend a lot of time thinking about, well, in five years I can do this because they know there may not be five years ahead. Hmm. That's that's a it's a strange almost. I mean, you could see that as morbid, but but it's actually it, it can contribute to a sense of well being. Right, and you often hear of people that like have have a scare with cancer or or even people dying of cancer that they say they they enjoy their days. I mean, as somebody says, one day can be a whole lifetime too. You know, if you really. Uh, are there and you learn how to savor the moments and you know uh, I think that people in their 80s do learn how to enjoy the little things so that the morning cup of coffee you know when my newspaper comes I still read the newspaper Uh, I am an early bird I get up so I get up and see the sunrise Uh, that these things that are everyday experiences um, become, uh, you have an increased ability to enjoy them. Aging is not all bliss, of course, but Esty is convinced that dreading aging only makes the experience of it worse. There's very few people that get through their 80s without having to make some major transitions. I mean, often they, you know, they, many of them, like me, lose their spouse. Many of them downsize and have to move to a different setting. Many of them have some kind of new uh, health issue or problem. But you do have to learn how to uh, let go and adapt. Let go specifically of what? Yeah, I had to let go of my house. Um, I had to let go of uh, my self-image of, uh, you know, that that I change it. Um, And I had to let go of Uh, my whole life of moving to a retirement community. And then I had to let go of my husband, you know, who was failing with, um, he had kidney failure. And um, so you you have a new life when you're in a new new setting and suddenly you're a widow. Um, You moved to the retirement community, the retirement home where you live um, when you were in your 70s. Your late husband was a bit older. How did you feel about that move when it happened initially? Oh, that was that, that was depressing. It was uh, th- that was the you know I I really found it very hard. It took me a couple of years actually. Mm. And how do you feel about it today? Today I feel extremely lucky. It's a, a wonderful world. I am enjoying it immensely. You know, I have two dance a dance class which I love with this ballet a person that was a ballet person and I do a Tai Chi class. Mm. So I'm doing a lot of exercise and it's fun and we see I, mean, I get to see people and I'm also in a lot of uh, I'm uh, head of the diversity group here which we kind of uh, having a festival of freedom on Juneteenth. Um, and, you know, so you get a lot of uh, engagement, I do, and I get a lot of pleasure. We have dinner with uh, Peter, my new, new love, and I have dinner usually every night with somebody else. So it's really very pleasant. So I think one of the key important uh, guidelines for aging well is to you really uh, take control of what parts of your life you have control over and, um, and then accept the ones that you don't. But... It's the and it's your attitude that I think uh, is so critical. There's some research that shows that if you have a positive view of aging, you're going to live 7.5 years longer than others that have a negative attitude. So attitude is is central. Did did you talk to anyone? Have you met anyone who is aging well, who has this sense of well-being? but is also experiencing serious physical health problems, serious limitations, loss of sight, loss of hearing, incontinence, maybe bedridden, those kinds of things. What's their secret? How do you, how do you deal with all of those traumatic losses, a, a traumatic physical loss, and still remain optimistic? 
Well, this is one thing younger people don't get. So let me, this is so interesting. They think when they see somebody that, you know, has uh, maybe can't, is losing their sight and maybe they uh, are also even getting deaf. You hear people say, I would shoot myself if I ever was that way. The fact is, if you are that way, people learn to accept the losses. What makes us happy is not what we think it is. We're way wrong on understanding what makes us happy. We think we still think it's houses and material things and so on. And and it isn't really. It's our attitude. So I, I would encourage you not to feel so sorry for people that have these losses, but to look to see if they are happy or not. And I would say, again, most people are happy. They're, I mean, of course, they're not glad to lose their eyesight, but I'm having a dinner tonight with someone who's losing her eyesight. And she's, you know, she's in a place we have uh, that where she's uh, surrounded by people. It's a very kind culture here. And uh, she has uh, friends. The people that I think are thriving and flourishing, they can have, have some kind of a purpose. And they, you know, I know one woman who is in a wheelchair here, but she, her purpose is she has a uh, a, a lot of grandchildren, and she says that that's her purpose now. She brings them all together so they all, even though they live all over the country, so that they come to her on, on holidays, and she, you know, is connected and spends time and with those kids, as I try to do with my grandkids, too. Catherine, I know that for your book, you also spoke to the children, some children, adult children of 80-year-olds. What is your advice for children of aging parents who would like to obviously see their parents um, thrive, <laughs> but also be safe and be able to maintain, you know, whatever quality of life their parents are hoping for, which often means trying to live, you know, continue living in their home. Um, what, what's your advice for, for how, how children can help their parents age well? Well, I think, you know, I, this is one of the reasons I wrote my book, which was just for the adult children and kind of teaching them in the book. I put at the end of every chapter kind of questions to ask and helping them to see what's really going on with their 80-something parent and how 80-somethings uh, can be cagey. And some of them don't even know how to uh, turn on their uh, TV, but they would never complain because they don't want to uh, bother their children. So uh, I do think that children... Um, have a huge role and it's really learning how to talk uh, across the generational divide and the, the adult children need to learn how to talk about difficult subjects like end-of-life issues that they need to ask their parents what they want and I think everyone can do a better job uh, in kind of asking what people need and finding out the adult children can find out really are there uh, they're 80-somethings happy, or are they, what are they worried about? What do they need? What do they need but can't ask for? Do you think that kids are sometimes afraid to really get into that conversation with their older parents because we're so afraid of aging that, you know, it's like, I don't, I, I'm not gonna be able to fix whatever it is and it's bound to be terrible and I don't, you know, I don't want to even broach it. Absolutely. Most people feel totally inequipped and uh, ill-equipped and they don't know how to do it. And I think also they, you know, one of the common problems, which is not a, a life or death one, but it can be a life or death, is driving. When, you know, people, they're 80-somethings or 86 and have these uh, small accidents, the kids really are worried for the safety of it. And yet they don't know how to talk about it. And they either come in and say, you've got to give up the car or they avoid it. And but together they really need there are better ways where you kind of talk together about those serious issues and learn how to address them and help the uh, 80 something come to their own those conclusions and or to kind of uh, really talk about it in an open way rather than avoiding it Catherine thank you so much for talking with me today it's been really lovely i really appreciate it well i've had a ball i have such a strong feeling of being on a mission and wanting to get out the word about how aging has changed and that being uh, in your 80s for many people is their happiest time in their life, believe it or not. Catherine Estes' book is 80-somethings, a practical guide to letting go, aging well, and finding unexpected happiness. Now, Bill Rogers had a lot to lose as his body aged. His whole adult identity was built on being strong and fast. In the 1970s, when he was in his 20s, Rogers was one of the most famous marathon runners in the world. 
He helped turn America into a nation of runners at a time when training for a race was not a thing regular people did. I made the Olympic team, which is an incredibly powerful feeling. Suddenly, you know, you're going to the Olympic Games, and it was a great honor, you know, to compete. The next year, Rogers became the first and so far only person in history to simultaneously hold the Boston, New York City, and Fukuoka marathon titles. Fukuoka International Marathon, kind of like the Japanese Boston. But everything changes, you know, you do your best one day and then suddenly your next race doesn't go as planned. Describe for me the race um, where you realized, oh. I'm getting older. Yeah. And maybe over the hill sort of thing. You know, well, certainly when you're 40 in the sport of track and field and athletics, you know, and marathoning, then you're in a different category. It's called the Masters. So I tried to win the Masters division at Boston. I got second. You know, I couldn't win it. And, and, and I couldn't win it in New York either. And what'd that feel like to you? Oh, it was frustrating because the guy was right ahead of me. And I saw him and I tried to catch him, but I couldn't catch him. You know, I tried to break the American record age 50. I couldn't do it. It was a hot day. I ended up dropping out. I was really beat up on the side of the road. And um, so, but you got to try, you know, I gave it a try. Here, Rogers had spent his entire running career at the top of the leaderboard as aging ate away at that identity. Did he even want to keep running? In the end, it's a benefit to always be active. Always, you know, why, why quit? Sometimes I hate running. There's a never-ending love-hate thing, you know, with, with a sport like that. But um, dopamine, chemical, goes to our brains. We're meant to move. But, like, we went out for a run today, and, and I went out with some friends. We did four miles, and then you feel great. And so it's like this rejuvenate. It's, it's the fountain of youth. Rogers kept running after he turned 50, but he stopped doing marathons. There were just too much wear on his body. And the purpose of running changed for him. He was in it for the enjoyment and the health benefits. So it took a special reason to bring him out of retirement at the age of 60 for one last marathon. Yeah, I was wearing my singlet, which had a name of an organization that was trying to get the word out about being tested for prostate cancer and everything. The year that Bill Rogers turned 60, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, had surgery for it, and beat the disease. Running the Boston Marathon one more time was his way of celebrating and sticking it to the cancer. You know, I remember, of course, one of the key parts of the Boston Marathon is Wellesley College, right on the course. And the Wellesley College students all come out and they're going, wow, you can hear, you actually hear a loud roar about a mile away. <laughs> There's hundreds of students out there and fans, and you just hear this like, and I, was, I went to the other side of the road, I said, this is too much for me. <laughs> But it was fantastic. And my friend, Zeus, he's a character, and he was saying, get out of the way, make way. Bill Rogers is coming. (laughs) I was saying, Zeus, be quiet, be quiet. (laughs) I wanted to come around the bend. You know, the the line is, you know, right on Hereford, left on Boylston. That's the finish line, half-mile finish. And coming down there, you know, my legs were going on me a bit six miles earlier, but I knew I could finish. You know, I'm not really that beat up, not dehydrated. But it was a great feeling to conquer the Boston Marathon. It's a great feeling. Rogers is 74 now, still running. He does a lot of shorter races, 5Ks, 10Ks, mostly just as an ambassador for the sport. He has let go of the need to win. And there will probably be more things he'll need to let go of as the years progress. Because his mom lived to be 97. Do you think you want to live to be 97, at least, like your mom? I think it would be fun to try, you know? I don't know. I think, I think everything is, if you're kind of lucky and you can stay active, then you will be lucky. You made your own luck, a lot of it, you know? Um, I have no idea, but I'm 74. It's not that far away. <laughs> you don't look with any sense of dread at the coming years? No, I don't have any dread at all. No, why? Why? So Bill Rogers and Catherine Esty both attest to the power of having a positive attitude about aging. But are they also just lucky outliers to still be so mentally sharp and mobile, able to do the things they enjoy? What's the reality of aging for most people in America? This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose.
we are seeing more and more individuals living routinely into their 80s and 90s in really good shape or living really vital lives in spite of facing a lot of medical and other age-related ailments. My name is Mark Agronin. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist in Miami. Agronin has spent 23 years at one of the largest geriatric psychiatry practices in the country, Miami Jewish Health Systems. He has more than 3,000 patients at the sprawling facility. It's essentially a long-term care campus in the heart of Miami. So the average age of my patients is in the 90s. Agronin wrote a memoir several years ago called How We Age, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Growing Old. Basically, my philosophy in both my clinical practice and, and just about everything I do is that we have to look at the strengths that age brings us and factor those into the equation. Over the last two decades, Agronin has noticed his patients are getting older. They're living longer. But they're also generally in better shape. Or they're living with chronic illnesses that in the past they would be a lot more debilitated, but they're just not as debilitated now because of so many advances in in medicine today. And so individuals who maybe had a cancer diagnosis years ago, but they're they're being managed and, and they're doing well. Now, some amount of decline in physical and cognitive abilities is simply inevitable in your 90s, says Dr. Agronin. But the issue is, does it really make a difference given their lifestyle, what they're doing? And it often doesn't. And that's another big difference that what individuals choose to do later in life adapt and accommodate to all the age-related changes that they face. And so they can still thrive and enjoy life and do so much. Agronin says that is especially true of his patients living in retirement communities. You know, they don't have to worry about driving and getting out and doing as much because so much is at the site for them. And so that makes a difference. You know, they're surrounded by individuals that don't have the same expectations and demands on them that they might have had when they were younger, that are not so concerned about how sharp or quick your memory is. Uh, Status doesn't make, social status is not as important. um, That this accounts for why Um, we know and we see that contrary to the belief that people get more depressed as they get older, that actually there tends to be more contentment and happiness and life satisfaction as we get older. And lots of large surveys are clear on that, that the happiest individuals tend to be in their 80s and above. And those happiness survey results are true even with the high prevalence of dementia as people live longer. Unfortunately, by the age of 85, almost 50% of the population uh, may have some degree of Alzheimer's disease, meaning this progressive loss of, of cognitive skills. In some ways, it's, it's one of the epidemics of our day. But here again, a person's attitude toward the challenges that come with aging makes a difference. Some of the data that's really um, amazing is that individuals who have a more positive attitude towards late life actually live longer and have lower rates of Alzheimer's disease. That's really startling. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I would add to the picture, there's been an enormous amount of research into having a sense of purpose. There's something called the MIDAS study or the middle middle age in, in the United States study, which has found that you can measure a person's sense of purpose and the higher the sense of purpose, the lower mortality you see, less cardio vascular events, less stroke. So there really does um, appear to be a very strong correlation between how you see yourself and being able to do things and, and having a more positive approach. Describe what a positive attitude toward aging would look like, you know, in a 50 or 60-year-old. How, do you, how, how positive do you have to be? How upbeat do you really have to be about all of this? Well, it's a great question because it doesn't, it, it's not exactly happiness as we're talking about. It's not that you have to smile and say, you know, yes, I, I love being older. This will be great. I'll love this. I'll be fine. No, it's, it's not that at all because we have to acknowledge that everyone faces struggles along the road. And these, these struggles do tend to become stronger and more complex as we get older in terms of what happens with our body and our brains. That's a given. What we're really getting at is having a sense of, um, hopefulness, a sense of a purpose and what, you, what you're doing, what you're going to do, and a sense of, of self-worth, self-efficacy that you're able to do this, you're able to adapt and change. Um, the good news is that the older mind tends to do this automatically. I'm sure you see a lot of patients and their families grappling with this question like, okay, things aren't good here. It looks like they're getting even worse. Like, this is what the future looks like. It holds for me. 
how do I embrace that? <laughs> like what, you know, what, what is the light at the end of this tunnel? I see so many individuals who come to me in this state or I'm asked to consult with them in this state. And um, now look, if we're talking about, you know, a, a terminal cancer diagnosis, you, there comes to a point where, yes, obviously lives do come to an end. But I think we sometimes do that pre- prematurely when we're dealing with chronic pain, depression, anxiety, wrapped up with other medical issues that still can be addressed in many different ways. Um, And it's really at that point where this is where one's attitude towards aging comes into play. If you look at aging as a disease and you can't find anything good in it at that point, it's easy for someone to say, ah, let the person go. I think instead we have to say, what else can we do How can we approach this? What are we missing here? What's the value? What's the purpose here? If that's our approach and we're able to see the good in aging, it makes all the difference in terms of what we can do with the person. The the most remarkable story is a woman who, a woman I actually worked with her husband who had Alzheimer's disease before I worked with her. And she came to me a number of years later after he passed on, which is terrible depression related to chronic pain. And uh, Muriel was seen to be at the end of the road. She was actually ended up in the hospital. She was delirious from being on morphine for pain. She'd gotten a pancreatitis from some of her medications. I mean, everything in her body was failing. They were about to put her in a hospice. It really seemed to be the end of the road for her. So the most wonderful thing is she, you know, her daughter is so devoted to her and decided to this point she was not going to let Muriel go home and just die, she was going to bring her into her household. So here it is, Muriel goes from living alone and dealing with her pain. Now she's in a household with a uh, not only a, a newborn baby there, but her daughter decides to get a rescue dog for her. And this is just something out of a movie. When they when they bring the rescue dog back and they look, it had a, a um, you know collar on it. The name of the dog just happened to be the name of Muriel's beloved husband who had died a few years ago. This is something that seemed almost miraculous, but but just that dog and being able to give to something else, to love something else, to her new granddaughter, her daughter, this dog, it transformed her. And suddenly she had a greater purpose than she had before. She felt this enormous support and love. And this really pulled her back from the brink. And what about the pain? Well, finally, I got her out of this notion that the only way to deal with pain was with a medication or an injection. You know, she had gone from pain doctor to pain doctor. She had had more injections than I think is is humanly possible. We brought into our pain program where the focus is on moving and walking and talking and not on pills and not on uh, injections all over your body. And that combined with being in this household and herself becoming a caregiver to her granddaughter and this dog in the house, that made all the difference and and really um, turned the tide with her to the point where, you know, I didn't see her as often. In fact, I I, I used to call her myself and say, how are you doing, Muriel? What's going on? Um, It's amazing. And to this day, you know, she's doing well. And this is a key lesson for the aging process. Sometimes all you have for your patient or all you have for yourself or loved one is hope. And that's all you can tap into, but you have to grab onto that and realize that there is a higher purpose to, to come to an understanding that there is a true reason, a true purpose why we are here. And it's not just, we're not alone, that uh, you know we matter, we make a difference, no matter what we do, just our existence. To me, that's that's the ultimate hope. And when someone has that cultivated, it's, it's, a, it's a blessing, it's a strength, and it makes all the difference. Dr. Gronin, you propose in the book creating and embracing rituals that celebrate aging. Can you describe what that would look like? Well, think about when someone comes of age, all the different uh, events that goes on in terms of, you know, uh, parties and celebrations and graduations and commencements and bar mitzvahs and quinceaneras and all of that. We have rituals, ways to celebrate so many different life transitions. But when someone gets older, suddenly it seems to stop. And too much of our culture looks at getting older as something bad and we poke fun at it. We don't want to deal with it. 
just imagine, you know, the average experience of someone coming into a nursing home is often a very, you know, hurried affair. I've seen people admitted in the middle of the night. It's, it's, it's crazy sometimes how there's such little regard given to the fact that this is a major transition in their life. And maybe there's a way we can make it more meaningful, almost celebratory to say, this is now going to be your home. We're here for you. We are your new family. We don't do this. I mean, I, you know, this, these rituals largely don't exist. But imagine instead of getting these, these gag cards about how you're over the hill and you're getting you know, older and you're losing your marbles and all this. Instead, we said, we're going to let's celebrate your wisdom now that you turned 50 or 60 or 80 or 90. Let's talk about what you've accomplished and what you represent to us, what you mean to us. This would make all the difference. Dr. Gronin, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Mark Agronin is a geriatric psychiatrist at Miami Jewish Health. His latest book is The End of Old Age, Living a Longer, More Purposeful Life. Why are these negative ideas about aging so deeply ingrained in us? In an ageist culture, in which our culture is very youth-obsessed, to age, quote-unquote, successfully really means to not age. If we were less ageist, the experience of getting older would be better for all of us. So where do we start? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. To be told you look younger than your actual years, great for your age, is a bit of a backhanded compliment. But in my squarely middle-aged years, I'll I'll take it, even if it is backhanded. Ashton Applewhite, though, says no thanks. My my one snappy comeback is, you look good for your age, too. (laughs) And let that awkward pause sit there. You know, what 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 they are saying is that you look less old than other people your age. And that, you know, once again, reinforces the fundamental and deeply problematic notion that young is good and pretty and old is bad and ugly. Ashton Applewhite is author of This Chair Rocks, a manifesto against ageism. She wrote it about a decade ago. And before that, she admits she was part of the problem. It was a time in which I was ageist, uh, completely. Here's an example that stands out. There was this guy at her office. His name was Ray, and he uh, looked kind of like Santa Claus, and he had, you know, the the fringe of white hair, and he had, um, you know, a pot belly, and he just looked like, you know, sort of Santa Clausian. And I remember learning that he and I were exactly the same age and thinking, what if people find out they'll think I'm old too? And that is a certainly an egregious and icky example of everything I'd like to be different in the world. Um, you know, the starting with the very basic assumption that there's something bad about being old, but also way more problematic, this wanting to distance myself from someone and feeling, um, you know, not wanting to be tainted is an awful word, but I think it's appropriate since I'm applying it to myself, by association um, with him. You say that was an icky example, but would you say that's probably not that uncommon for people as they age to kind of look around? And I mean, I'll admit that occasionally I'll see someone on television, an actress, and I'll think, wow, she looks kind of old. And I'll look her up and I'm like, she's younger than me. What does that mean about how people (laughs) see me? (laughs) <laughs> well, welcome to being human, and thank you for telling uh, a personal story on yourself as well. Of course, it's common. It is ubiquitous. I'm about to turn 70. This is what 69.9 looks like on me. It looks different on someone else. And the whole idea, you know, that there is is one way to look as we age is, of course, impossible and inaccurate. But in an ageist culture, to age quote-unquote, successfully, really means to not age, right? Is this a particularly American thing? I think it's especially uh, acute in America or, or driven by forces that are particularly strong in America. You hit the nail on one of them, which is Hollywood. 
And another factor, you know, capitalism is everywhere, but I would say America is a hyper-capitalist society. You know, no one makes money off satisfaction. And if we can become persuaded that some aspect of how we look is a huge problem, then we can be persuaded to spend, you know, vast amount of effort and hopefully money, um, you know, to, to fix this thing. And, you know, if we could agree that wrinkles are a gorgeous map of of time on your face, the way we look at an old piece of pottery or piece of furniture and we think that the cracks in the in the glaze or whatever are what make it beautiful. You know, these, these are choices we make. No one says we have to think a certain way. These are socially constructed ideas, which means we make them up and we can unmake them and they serve a social and economic purpose. And the purpose of, of them from a capitalist point of view is to convince us that these are problems that we should spend money um, trying to fix. Applewhite says our cultural obsession with youth has also been driven by urbanization and industrialization. As jobs moved into the big cities and younger people moved to the cities to follow those jobs over the last century, we as a society became increasingly segregated by age. Nursing homes sprang up to care for people without family nearby. Meanwhile, we've all leaned into this age segregation, gravitating toward retirement communities for the 50 and older set, condos for young professionals. Whole neighborhoods have been built just for young families. The cumulative effect, says Applewhite, is that we can't relate to people of different generations. And those broad labels we use, boomer, Gen X, millennial, do not help. One problem with them is that they foster stereotyping, of course. And how could anything possibly be true of millions of people born around the same time? Class in particular, and race, and gender, and ethnicity all play a far bigger role in shaping what we're interested in. But the minute you have these, you know, boomers are greedy, millennials are lazy. All this stuff about how disloyal they were because they changed jobs a lot. When people my age were in their 20s, we changed jobs a lot too, because that's what you do when you're trying to find your way in the work world. It's a function of of the age you are, not when you were born. And when we label people, it becomes easier to stereotype them and to exaggerate what they have in common and to pit them against each other. So I would really like all generational labels to um, disappear. And it's not just those labels, she says. Think about how you use the words old and young. You know, I hear people say, I don't feel old. And what they really mean is I don't feel invisible. I don't feel ugly. I don't feel sexless or incompetent. And I don't know about you, but I felt all those things more acutely when I was a teenager than I have ever felt since. It's almost always, when you stop to think about it, not about age. So try to use the word that describes how you were actually feeling or what you actually encountered instead of defaulting, as we all do, no judgment, to blaming age. You're too old for that. I'm too young for that. What What do you actually mean? You might be too smart for that. You might be too lazy for that. But it's never about age because someone else the same age might go do it a hundred times or might not think, consider ever doing that. It's a function of who they are, not how old they happen to be. How has this pervasive belief that old aging is scary, that that younger is better than older, how has that affected the experience of aging in America? It's totally corrupted it and tainted it. Every time we forget something when we're older and we blame it on age rather than, you know, on being tired, uh, you know, or what, whatever, you know, whatever's going on in our lives. If we simply default to age, we create these self-reinforcing stereotypes that meet, that have all sorts of bad ramifications. We don't talk to the doctor. We don't say, speak up, please, if we can't hear, that reinforce behaviors that do make our lives smaller and do make us less likely to seek medical care, to be assertive about what we want. You know, it's a whole chain of, chain of behaviors that relate to the assumption that everything's falling apart because you're older. Ashton Applewhite is an activist and author of This Chair Rocks, a manifesto against ageism. 
You know, old age is a pretty unusual thing in the animal world. Among mammals, only humans and a few species of whales have grandparents in their midst. Usually, animals reach reproductive age early in life and die pretty soon after that. But humans live long past peak fertility. Something called the grandmother hypothesis suggests that older females in particular were critical to the survival of early humans by helping care for the young so mothers could have more children. Somewhere along the line, though, we started seeing old age as a burden instead of a blessing. By segregating ages, we really, really deprive young people of realizing how you can grow old with grace, how you can grow old and be engaged, how you can grow older and and discover new things in your life. This is Donna Butts. I'm the executive director of Generations United. Generations United is a nonprofit that researches and promotes intergenerational policies. And it was a simple program pairing older adults with teenagers that really lit a fire for this issue in Butts. I did my first intergenerational program over 40 years ago uh, when I was the team director at the Salem, Oregon YWCA. And one of the programs that I inherited, I was probably about 22 years old, was a program that took high school sociology students to visit low-income, isolated seniors who are still living in their own homes. And what I saw was how incredibly powerful they were. You know, we had older adults that never got out of bed except the day that their student was coming, and students that skipped school except for the day that they needed to go visit their, their older friend. It gave both of them purpose, a reason to show up, a reason to be there. So there was this one pairing where we had a um, young man who had, um, you know, wore leather, was a little bit of an an outcast, and we paired him with an older woman who was a very warm person. When when he started to visit, when he first started to visit her, he wore a cap. And as they got more comfortable, she said, would you take your cap off? And when he did, he had a bright orange mohawk haircut. And she thought that was great. And she reached across the table to pat his arm. And he said, you know, I know he looks a little strange, but he's such a nice boy. So they really could get past those stereotypes of old people are boring and younger people are just wanting to, you know, cause trouble and they look weird and they dress funny and they all that sort of thing. It really showed the humanity in there and their connection with each other. What else have you seen communities do to encourage breaking down those segregated barriers between the ages? Some communities will actually have an intergenerational task force that's made up of young, younger and older people um, helping to review their sidewalks, their, their parks, their accessibility for young and for old, but also helping them to look at any new opportunity through an intergenerational lens. More and more communities are looking at how they can make their resources go further by building intergenerational centers versus a senior center and a teen center or or something they might generically call a community center. It seems like an obvious solution, like let's build it all as one facility, save money, save on overhead. Why has that not been, you know, kind of the standard approach to this point? We've made it really hard for people to do uh, combined programs in many ways because we've segregated our funding. Like this funding can only be used for older adults or we only fund children's programs, that kind of thing. So it it takes really somebody who has the vision and the passion um, because there's ways of making it work. And there's so many programs that have made it work around the country. One of my favorite programs is in Jinx, Oklahoma. It's Grace Living, which runs uh, continuing care facilities for older adults and Jinx Public Schools. And when they were renovating one of their facilities, they really wanted to have an intergenerational presence. This is the Grace Living, the senior living uh, part. So what they did as they were renovating this facility is they did sort of a spoke Uh, a hub and spoke. So you walk into an entrance and you go one direction, it might be memory care, one direction it might be um, more independent living and and one direction might be more health care. But then right in the middle as you walk in, there are two public school classrooms. One is a pre-K and one is a a, a kindergarten class. 
What I love about that is that that's the hub, that's the energy, that's the heart of that living facility. So every morning when parents are dropping their kids off or a bus is coming, many of the older adults are right there at the door greeting every child that walks in that door. Hugs, high fives, glad you're here, so good to see you again. And then the kids go into their classes and many of the older adults then volunteer as grand reading buddies or grandparents, uh, and they'll read to the children, they'll uh, do ice cream socials with the children, they'll have little after-school parties with the kids, they do all sorts of things like that. And the impact is incredible. I mean, one thing is that the kids' um, reading scores, when they then go into regular elementary school, are higher than other children because they've had, a, had that extra attention. Um, we've also heard from people who operate these kind of programs that they get calls from teachers saying, you know, the kids that were in your program are the most patient, the most accepting. They don't see somebody with disabilities, they see somebody with opportunities. You know, it's just become second nature. And then you just get these incredible encounters, like one, one of the older adults who had moved into the facility felt like her life was over. And the activity director said, please, please, you know, come and be a reading buddy. She finally did, and she, after after a week of that, thanked the woman for giving, giving her back her life, for giving her back her purpose. And for the children, one, one of my favorite stories from Jinx is one of the grands didn't make one of the reading um, sessions one day and the teachers wanted to explain to the children and they, they, so they said, told the children that Grandma Irene um, is in the hospital. And so one of the little girls looked a little bit perplexed and she raised her hand and she said, when she comes back, can we see her baby? Because why else would you be in the hospital? I mean, they're just the, the natural way of the relationships, what they learned from each other, what they appreciated about each other, how they embraced life was fabulous. Although that makes me think that there must also be um, a fair number of situations where one of the grands dies or becomes incapacitated and can no longer participate. And and so then the school has to deal with that <laughs> with, with pre-K kids? You know, actually, it, it's amazing because sometimes parents will say, well, I don't want my child in a program like that because somebody may die. Well, you know what? Somebody is going to die in their lives. And what better place for them to have that experience than with professionals that deal with that on a regular basis. They have wonderful rituals for death and dying and grieving at Jinx in that facility I was talking about. They process it with the children. They write letters. They do tributes that then, then are given to the older adult's family, the children talking about their memories, what, how wonderful it was. But they don't hide it in a closet. They process it. They deal with it. They support the children. Um, so they're much better prepared to deal with a loss when one might happen in their own family. Donna Butts' organization, Generations United, also advocates for intergenerational housing arrangements. There's one in Portland she likes to highlight. It's for foster and adoptive families and then older adults. So there might be apartments or smaller um, houses, housing for the older adults, and then homes for the foster and adoptive families. And they're all integrated into this community. The older adults get reduced rent, and they're only told to care for the kids, care for the families. So they become that extra, that extra layer of support for the family. If somebody needs to be picked up after school, if somebody needs help with their lessons, uh, if somebody needs dinner started before they can get home from work, uh, they're the ones that are there uh, to support each other. And if the older adults need, need support as they age, the families are there to support them. So that intergenerational community is just uh, it's beautiful. Now, in that case, the older adults and the families have separate living spaces. But Butts says intergenerational home sharing is also gaining in popularity. Generally, it's the older adult has, has their own home and they want to be able to stay in that home. They may have limited resources and they need a little bit of extra rent or they may need a little bit of help to enable them to continue to live there. So they will um, develop an agreement uh, with a young person, usually it's a student, a college student, um, and they'll make they'll they'll have an agreement that they will have dinner together once a week, or they will walk the dog twice 
a week or whatever the agreement is in exchange usually for a lower rent. But that lower rent may be just enough for that older adult to be able to um, have the maintenance done on their home so they can stay there. Would you like to see more multi-generational households in America? We are seeing more multi-generational households in America. That's the way of the future. We are, in fact, very interdependent. And I think the pandemic taught us all that lesson that we need each other, that we are interdependent. So I think it's respecting the choice that families make and, and, and holding it up for celebration. Now, when it comes to policy, we need to look at ways where we um, can make sure that family members can provide care for each other. We need to make sure that workplace benefits extend not just to children, but it might extend to, uh, to grandchildren or nieces or nephews, whatever the family configuration might be. We need to make sure that we're um, allowing there to be home loans um, that take into account the total household income. Um, we, there, there's several things that we need to do that we can um, help and support the families. What could we do as a society to help older adults stay engaged in the community when they no longer, you know, maybe they, they can't they can't do all the things they used to do. They're they're no longer working. You know, maybe they're experiencing physical and cognitive limitations. What, what can communities do to help help them still feel connected? A part of of older adults staying involved is to look at their ability and not their inability. And there are wonderful examples of even older adults who are homebound being able to provide telephone or um, Zoom support for a child that may want to study their, you know, help with their reading. So they may not be as physically able, but they can still help. There's also programs where uh, they have children who are visiting older adults who have, who have dementia or Alzheimer's, uh, and it really makes a difference in that older person's lives where they can be involved. Um, there was one program where they used to take the babies over to the uh, dementia unit and even if older adults might have been a little bit agitated, once they're holding a baby, they calm down and they're happy. And they're so they're helping because they're rocking the babies. So there are different things that, that people can do, but it's looking at the ability, not, not the um, inability. Donna Butts is executive director of Generations United. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by Cleon Wall, James Hoops, and me, with help from Ciara Hewlett. We had music and sound design by Jacob Molaski, Christian Mocatel, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. If you're enjoying Top of Mind, and I hope you are, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. That'll help others to find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon.